Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Think about it. Deep conversations with Uli Bear on big ideas and great books. What does it mean to think like an American? In 1837, the American philosopher Ralph Waldo Emerson gave a speech in Cambridge, Massachusetts called The American Scholar. In it, he said that our day of dependence, our long apprenticeship to the learning of other lands draws to a close. Oliver Wendell Holmes called this speech, the American scholar, America's intellectual declaration of independence. Different from the political declaration of independence, Emerson's speech inaugurated a new era where Americans really thought that they inaugurated a new and different intellectual tradition, a way of thinking for and about ourselves that made us truly new beings in the world. What does it mean to think for ourselves as Americans? I spoke with Professor Eduardo Cadava, who teaches at Princeton University and is an expert on Emerson and many other things. He's written several books on Emerson and especially on the relationship between language, politics, and history in our daily lives. It's an important topic today when everybody seems to be wrestling with what it means to be truly an American, with what language can be used in what context, and with a way of turning America into the ideal, into the more perfect union that the Founding Fathers had envisioned, but which many of us think still needs to be fully realized. Eduardo, I'm really happy to have you here. It's nice to be here. Thank you for coming on Think About It. <laughs> You've written uh, many books mm -hmm. on Emerson, Walter Benjamin, on photography, mm -hmm. and I remember reading Emerson on the climate of history mm -hmm. um, a couple of years ago. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and I thought maybe we'll start with a quote from Self-Reliance mm -hmm. to start our conversation mm -hmm. on, on Emerson. So the quote is, um, to believe your own thoughts, to believe that what is true for you in your private heart is true for all men. That is genius, mm -hmm. to believe your own thought. So I wondered whether you could start us out by giving me a sense of how to make sense of a sentence like that, to believe your own thought, to believe what is true for you and your private heart is true for all men. Yeah, I mean, I think that one of the things I'll say, just as a kind of preface, because I think that this will come up in, in different moments when we're talking about particular lines, is that in order to read Emerson, I really think you have to always put his language in relation to other sentences, so that even this sentence, I think, has to be contextualized within the essay and then within the corpus in some way. Um, Self-Reliance, of course, is one of the canonical essays. I mean, when everybody says, have you read Emerson? They always say, I read Self-Reliance. Um, he's known as sort of Mr. Self-Reliance, somebody who insisted on uh, our relying on ourselves at the expense of relations with others. Uh, I think this is a massive misreading of Emerson, um, and much of the work that I've done on Emerson is meant to actually suggest how insistent he was on our relationality 
So, for example, the essay Self-Reliance, um, which has statements like insist on yourself, never imitate, etc., begins with two epigraphs. Um, the first epigraph is, uh, do not seek yourself outside yourself, which seems to be consonant with the way in which we read self-reliance, but the line is a quotation. So that there's already this dependence, right? <laughs> and one can track, as has been um, shown, if you read any of the editions uh, uh, of uh, Emerson that have a kind of textual apparatus, that almost 98% uh, of self-reliance is quotation. You know, so that he's actually recirculating, citing from his journals, from elsewhere, right. uh, which is part of the method of composition. I mean, he very often recirculates passages from elsewhere into the essay. So that in some sense, what he's doing is he's asking you to think self-reliance, um, which is a term that is circulating during the period, right? There's the self-reliance of America in relation to England, the self-reliance of the pioneer, uh, and he takes a term that is circulating that has a kind of currency, and then he works it through the essay so that by the time you get to the end of the essay, it has no relation to what you thought it was. And, and this is a kind of tactic that he uses in all of his essays. So that um, self-reliance actually becomes um, a, a kind of figure or, or term that encourages a rethinking of your relation to others. So that when he says, trust thyself, he says, think about your relation to divine providence, to the society of your contemporaries. And so, so all of a sudden, like, trust yourself, insisting yourself means, among other things, understanding your relation to others. So if we're going to think about what it means to be self-reliance, you have to begin from the point of departure that you're always in advance related to others. Mm -hmm. So I think this is extremely important, and this is linked to his conception of genius, because his genius in Emerson is always doubly marked. It, the genius of a person is linked to the singularity of a person, right. uh, but at the same time, genius is a, a force that is larger than a person that moves through this person, which is why at a certain point in the essay, self-reliance, he says, after the reading that I'm suggesting, um, do not speak of self-reliance. It is a poor way of speaking. Speak instead of something that works through us. Um, and in the essay, he calls this thing that works through us the aboriginal self. Right. right? It's, a, it's, a, it's a force that is larger than us, that works through us, that traverses us, um, so that as we act, we are at the same time acted upon by these forces that are larger and than us. And this force is not personal or what we would have called human nature or an essence of ours. It's actually not ours. It's not, it's, I mean, it's, it's not ours even though it traverses us. Yes. So that yes. in some sense you could think of it as uh, as you, as a kind of um, archive of all the relations that have gone into the making of who you are. I would say that this paradox goes, um, you can see this paradox everywhere in Emerson. Everyone in Emerson. So right. that, um, you know, you are who you are because of your relations to others. And yet, it's precisely because of your relation to others that you're never just yourself. Unless you say, I am the one who is never just myself. I want to go back to this idea that he says self-reliance. Everybody yeah. quotes self-reliance yeah. and says, this is the one thing that should be self-evident. And this sentence, when you just unpacked it, yeah. supposed to be the thing we all know. Well, self-reliance, rely on yourself, trust right. yourself, don't imitate. Right. And he says, this is the great danger to think you already know yourself. Exactly. And, he's, and so I think Emerson's gesture is always what you think is most innate, most natural, right. most commonsensical. Right. He says, that's what we have to really think about. Yeah. Yeah. And this is also very American in a way that mm -hmm. in an in a interesting way, I think he always poses the commonsensicality of America. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. It's evident. We're practical people. Right. Right. We just live our lives here. This is right. what we do. We're settling yeah. this continent. Yeah. And he yeah. says, let's think about what we're doing. Right. 
Right. That's why the, the essays often open with these big questions. Who are we? Or yeah. where am I? Yeah, exactly. And I think those little sentences which people read over are really deep to say, where am I? Yeah, yeah. Because So when self-reliance is the one thing you would think, well, everybody quotes it and says, I know what that means. Yeah. That we actually do not know what that means. No, and also, I mean, it's it's every one of the terms, you know, that it's always, um, I mean, if you look at the titles of his essays, right. I mean, it's like self-reliance, friendship, history, uh, nature. It's never about nature, about friendship. It's always right. just that term, as if what he's talking about can't be conceptualized, can't be thematized, but in fact, he's also giving you an example of what it means. So this essay comes to you in the form of self-reliance, which is to say self-reliance is an activity that has something to do with uh, registering, acknowledging, uh, enacting your relation to others. Right? And let me ask you two things, sort of, when you said, you said a couple of moments ago, self-reliance is also something traverses you and you are the kind of result probably always in excess of the kind of addition of the things that have shaped you and formed right so there's language and history so first of all we use the language given to us right as children we right. learn the languages of when used this is a big emersonian project to right. say how do we speak right in a new american english right not in an english that was inherited or given right. to us and how do we live in a place that invents its own history and buries and covers over its own history. Yeah, yeah. So when you say something first about the language, when you say the language operates, what what kind of English is this? What does he, when he said he takes quotations from himself, from other people? I mean, he does say at one point uh, in the essay, The Poet, that uh, language is the archives of history. And I think that, that um, I mean, if you think of Pound saying at one point, let me indulge in the American habit of quotation. You know, there's a way right. in which he understands that, that language bears the traces of, of history. It doesn't just belong, as you said, to us. We use a language that just isn't just ours, um, which is why he's, he's always so attentive to the way in which the language we use, let's say, to question, to challenge this or that institution, because it's not our language and because it bears all this history, very often we can think that we're criticizing something and without our knowing it, we're re reinforcing, repeating the very gestures of the institution that we wish to criticize. So this um, is the one part where language, we're using terms that have been used before. And, and so this is one, why one of his um, uh, strongest encouragements for us is to understand the history of the language we use. So for example, when he says, um, if we want to understand what slavery has meant, what we need to do is rake our language. Right. You know, we have this to. This is on the proclamation, on the emancipation in the British West, oh, the British Indies. West Indies essay. So we have to rake our language. We have to excavate it, and basically, we have to see how the term slavery has been used in relation to a constellation of terms that have to do with what it means to be human, what it means to be black, what it means to be a slave, uh, and that you you begin to co coordinate these these passages, these lines, these words with one another, because one of the things he wants to do, and I just gave that example of self. Reliance. He takes a term, marks it, reworks it, recontextualizes it, so by the time you get to the end of this, it doesn't look like what we thought right. it was. The gesture is always taking the language he inherits and working on it so that he can encourage us to rethink our relation to the language we inherit, because he thinks that if he can ask us to rethink our relation to the language we inherit, perhaps he can encourage us to rethink 
greater relations, not okay. just language. You know, so he wants, doesn't want to just change our relation to language. He wants to change our relation to the relations in which we live. And to our social and human relations. Exactly. And he thinks yeah. that language is one of the means or one of the markers right. of those relations. And in this example you get from the from their from their notice on the emancipation of the slaves in yeah. British West Indies when he says we have to rake our language yeah. to understand what slavery is. Yeah, has meant. Because has meant. Yeah. Is he worried that we use the word slavery in a kind of facile way as if we knew what it had meant? I think like, yeah. I so think if the, he has these comments on the opposition yeah, to slavery, yeah. he says It's a terrible thing to just take this position as right. if you know what it means. I think that this this is something I mean, you brought up before, and I think that it's nice accenting it, that Emerson doesn't think that any of the words that we use um, uh, have a fixed determinate meaning, right? I mean, he thinks again, so he says the word God is as fugitive as any other word, right? Which I actually want to say something when you just said, and yet all of his essays are titled Nature, Fate, History, Experience. Exactly. So they have this kind of proclamation yeah, kind of value yeah. this is what it is and at the same time you say at the same time by the time you get to the end of the essay he's he's transformed it in a way that that it becomes almost recognizable uh, and that rec unrecognizability is the force of the provocation of the essay so that um, you know he can say that this thing we call democracy there's nothing de democratic in this thing we call democracy um, right. he says manifest destiny freedom democracy find names for an ugly thing You know, the representatives do not represent. You know, so yeah, he's fine names a for, fine name for, for an ugly So he's saying fine. the great terms that define America. Yes. Freedom, fine, declaration yes. of independence, democracy. Because he knows that in the name over. of democracy, many nasty things have been done. In okay. the name of freedom, many nasty things have been done. Yeah. So he's one of the, I think this is what we were saying before the conversation began, that he's, I think he's one of the great analysts of the, of the almost inevitability of political complicity, the way in which you can use language and terms. I mean, we like uh, self-reliance, independence, democracy, freedom, democracy, freedom. etc. <laughs> yes. But what he's doing is he's scanning the landscape and he's seeing the way in which these terms are being mobilized, let's say by a Daniel Webster, um, in order to encourage the subjugation of different populations. So that he will Webster, say, for example, of Daniel Webster, you, yeah. that the word liberty in the mouth of a Webster is like the word love in the and mouth of a And who is Webster in this moment here? This is 1850 in Massachusetts. So what's Webster's role? Uh, 1860. So that what Webster's role is in relation to Emerson here why is he so angry well I mean he he loved Webster right he had a, a fondness for him he, he admired um, the force of his rhetoric mm -hmm. but it was exactly the force of his rhetoric that worried him because he mm -hmm. thought that because he was an amazing orator that he could mobilize language to move people in ways that could subjugate him so as I was saying a minute ago um, is that at one point he even says that the word um, The word freedom in the mouth of Webster is like the word love in the mouth of a courtesan, you know, so that, that he, he um, both in the essay nature, I mean, everybody knows that he attacked Webster uh, after Webster's support of the fugitive slave law. But just give us a sentence and what everybody's supposed to know. Okay. So what happens so here? What's the historical context? Um, Uh, Webster, Daniel Webster gives a speech called The Constitution and the Union, uh, and it's an argument uh, where he's trying to preserve the Union in the midst of the debates over slavery, etc. And of course, what he wants to do is compromise. He wants a compromise to be articulated, and he wants to, and he supports, he lends his support to the fugitive slave law. Right, which is the law that required people to uh, send back slaves who had run away to their owners. So this is in Massachusetts. And in Emerson Massachusetts. is so enraged because he says... Because he lives in Massachusetts. And he actually says somewhere, <clears throat> he says, 
I have nothing to do with Southern slavery. It doesn't bother me, it doesn't affect me, but he says this. Until this moment. And this makes it so clear how complicit yeah. he is, because yeah. now he is obligated exactly. to turn back people exactly. into slavery. And I've always thought that this moment which you're referencing is, is actually a rhetorical pose on his part. Because, on Emerson's be, part. Yeah, because these two essays that he gives, the two lectures he gives on the, uh, 1850, uh, the 1851, 1854 essays he gives on the Fugitive Slave Law, he begins both of them by saying, you know, I always feel kind of uncomfortable when I address contemporary issues. I always feel mm -hmm. that I'm dealing with something temporary instead of permanent, eternal. And if you've been tracking how from the beginning of his career he's been addressing contemporary political issues, right. what you see him doing is taking this pose of someone who retreats from the political in order to lend more force that this issue has encouraged him to come out of the closet and speak about this issue. So that if even Emerson is talking mm -hmm. about this issue, it must be important. And as you say, one of the things he says is, I, I never before have been touched by this issue, but now I am touched by this issue. And his reading of, of this is that the moment you enact a law like the Fugitive Slave Law, the law is fugitive. And he says this filthy law. It's a filthy it's not, law. In a journal, yeah. he says it's a filthy yeah, law. That he says, thought. I will not obey it. Exactly. So in some ways, what he's saying that the, a law could be imposed, the terms are, and this is what I'm interested in when you said the terms liberty, democracy, freedom, yeah, and, yeah. and independence, they don't mean what they're supposed to mean. And at the same time, you said Emerson doesn't trust that words have these stable meanings. So it's not a question of that someone uses them hypocritically, right, or wrongly. He says... We need to do the work to see what work this word has done in our history. And yeah. it means these particular things at different times, and I'm going to put your attention to that, that you right. have the creative ability to give it some real meaning. Yeah, right? no, this is important because I think that, I mean, one could say, for example, that the evocation of equality um, always takes place in the midst of inequality, right? This right. is just a fact. Um, so, but this doesn't mean that we want to eliminate the word equality or, or the aspiration toward equality. But it's exactly as you say, what one does is one has to, to try and study or think about the way in which these terms have helped produce history. So you have to think about the way in which they're used, mobilized, um, and people can use these words in different directions. Emerson has in the Fugitive Slave Law piece, at one point he says, there are always texts and thoughts and arguments. Um, we all knew that Webster could give us a good speech. But we also know that, that uh, a free judge can read freedom out of this statute, and a slavery judge can read slavery out of the same statute. And then he goes on to say, so that, so that in this context where um, you, you can't know in advance what the ground is because something can be read in different ways, he says the, the question that history with a capital H will ask is much broader. Right. That in the final hour when the armies are closing in and you have to take a stand, did you stand for oppression and chaos or freedom and justice? I've always thought this is fabulous because at the very moment that he takes away any kind of secure ground on which you right. could know which way to go, he says that's the moment when you have to take a stand. So you have to take a stand in the moment in which you don't know which way to go and, and without knowing how to do it. And that's the only moment in which you can be held answerable for what you do because otherwise you're just, if you know in advance, what you should do, you're just following a program. And it's interesting what he says there. He said, will you have stood on the side of chaos and injustice right. or of freedom and, and justice? And yeah, he says, yeah. 
he gives us for a moment a glimpse, there would be a position from yeah, which to exactly, actually judge. Exactly. So I think in what happens in Amazon, yeah. he unsettles all these terms. Yeah. He says experience self-reliance. You thought what this means, you actually don't know what right, this means. Right. But then there are moments in the essay, kind of these resting points, yeah. where these sentences which are so apodictic, they just say what they yeah, mean, yeah, very exactly, brief. And exactly. those are the ones everybody likes to quote. Yeah, yeah. Because they give you a moment of stability, but he says, this moment is a very hard one. Yeah. This is not an easy one where I just know what yeah. I'm doing. Yeah. Yeah. And I think the, I want to go back to this other part that, how does this relate to that he's a particularly American writer? Mm-hmm. Because you would think this is philosophy. This is, and there's a whole debate yeah. whether Emerson yeah. is a philosopher. There's right. a whole debate whether American has philosophers. Right. Right. So Stanley Cavell and Harold right. Bloom have sort of right. been the people. Or, yeah. But what does it mean for America to invent its own language, to declare a new type of freedom? Right. And have compromised itself right at the beginning. Right, right. So, this is this is a great question. I mean, I, I think that one of the things I would say is that for Emerson, you know, because he's rethinking everything—history, politics, experience—in terms of issues of representation and language, and he thinks that this is what it what it means to be American, because America was founded on a rethinking of the nature and concept of representation, and for him, not just political representation, but representation in general. So that that for him. Insofar as you are American, you are obliged to think about issues of representation in language. So say something, what do you mean by the term representation? Not just political. Yeah. He has these essays representative men. This is a really important term. Right, right. And what does representation mean if it's not just political? So we had a problem with the Tea Party that we weren't adequately represented right. in the British Parliament, right? That's not what this is about. No, I think what he means is that, that whatever um, representation, whatever political representation we want to think about, we cannot think about that political representation outside of issues of language uh, rep- and, and actually linguistic representation, right? right? Because, I mean, what, you know, I think in Emerson, um, in some way what's so, so kind of extraordinary about him, I think that he, he really believes that th- there can be no political gesture, no political act, no politics without a thinking of representation in language. So this doesn't mean, though, that that uh, the killing, the war, the suffering, the, uh, the battles can be reduced to language, uh, are only words. It just means that they could never happen without words. You could never go to war, for example, without commands, legislation, um, arguments put forward to encourage people to die for a cause. So I think that when he's, I think one of the strengths of what he's doing is he's saying, if you want to think about politics and political representation, you have to understand that that, that representation goes hand in hand with a rethinking of the concept and nature of linguistic uh, representative uh, representation. So would it be right to say that there's, of course there's language, instrumental utilitarian language in politics. You have to say something, people have to understand you, sort of it's about communication, it's about getting things done, et cetera. And then there's another level or layer where, for example, to call a war a just war. Right. That is something else. He said that's not just using a word in a certain way, right. but it's, it's a deeper level of understanding how language actually shapes our existence. Absolutely. So this other layer is what we would call more symbolic. And I, I think the combination in Emerson that he puts that so he puts much pressure, yeah. that yeah. he says, yeah, you use language in everyday where, of course, we communicate. Right. And he's a very communicative, he was he a is. speaker. Yes. And there's yeah. something about the, the essays. He liked the form of the essay. Yeah. It's such a direct address in each one. Yeah, yeah. So this part he totally grants. He said language, of course, it just works right, that way. Right. That's how we are in the world with right, other people. Right. But then there's another part of language, how yeah. it actually makes us 
into particular players in this sociality. I mean, I think one thing that's important in terms of the, let's say, the accessibility of, of Emerson, um, because I think this is part of what you say, is he, he's giving addresses, he's writing essays, um, he, he's going and giving lectures. Um, and I, I remember once being asked by uh, the early American historian Bernard Balin, you know, I was, I was talking about the, the opening of nature and uh, how it references <coughs> Daniel Webster and the Bible and Thomas Paine. And, and Balin was looking at me and he goes, well, you know, I just, I mean, I, I don't know, he was giving lectures to farmers, mechanics. You know, I just can't believe that they understood a word that he said. You know, I mean, why do you think he was so popular? Why do you, and you know this thing about um, Webster, Paine, the Bible, all at once in these opening sentences. I mean, are you saying that he just sat down with all these sentences and then tried to think of a way in which he could incorporate them into one sentence? Right. And I said, no, I'm saying he has a library in his head. You know, mm -hmm. he has a library in his head. And it's not only that. At one point, um, he says that if you read a sentence properly, it can become as broad as the world. Mm -hmm. So that one of the tasks of, of reading Emerson's sentences is effectively reconstructing the world that made these sentences possible. Mm -hmm. right? So that if you're thinking about reading this or that sentence, when he's giving his speech, or let's say he's giving his address on nature, and he's referencing Webster, he's referencing Paine, he's referencing the Bible, everybody knew the Webster. Mm -hmm. There was a revival in pain in the 1830s. Everybody was talking about pain, especially among labor groups mm -hmm. who were evoking the rhetoric of the rights of man to argue for their rights. Everybody knew the Bible. So I think that what, what seems obscure and difficult and very often for us is just that we've lost an ear for hearing what his audience would have heard very easily. It's also a funny question to me to say, did people know the references? Of course, I miss a lot of references in right. Emerson when you said 90% of quotations. Who do right, I? Right. I mean, unless you read the journals, which right. he kept from 1820 yeah, yeah. to 1877. Yeah. Incredible. Yeah. But let's say we don't know them. Right. He's also saying that language constitutes us. What you said much yeah. earlier, genius yeah. is a force that traverses right. us, just like right. language exactly. constitutes us. And he says it's a great danger for people to just use the words that have been given to them. Because yeah. that, for him, I guess yeah. he wouldn't use his word as inauthentic or wrong right. or gets that into the political, wrong political side. Right. Right. So he also empowers his listeners to say, your language will make you. So I'm going to give you the loftiest, most powerful language because this is America. We, we have the chance to invent our language. Yeah. Yeah. So I think to say these people didn't get it is sort of a misunderstanding. Yeah. He says, all we have is language right. in a way. Right. It's, it, all we have is to make ourselves through this language in this new land, because if we use the terms from before, it's not going to get us. Let me see if I can. Uh, there was something that, that this now reminds me of when you asked me about his Americanness, and I and I took this sort of route of the Americanness of thinking about representation, which mm -hmm. I think is there. Mm -hmm. um, Emerson at one point says, "Pray do not read American thought as of no nation." Right, so that there's a way in which, of course, he's interested in America, but he's also, as you said, he, he's also a thinker, a philosopher. So he uses America um, because he wants to talk about America. This is where he lives. He's interested in this context, and he's engaging all the contemporary debates in America. But he also wants to think about America as itself something that is relational, mm -hmm. right? That can't be thought in isolation, right? In Emerson, you could never say. You're either with us or against us. This mm -hmm. is an impossible statement mm -hmm. in Emerson in Emerson's mm -hmm. world, right? Um, Margaret Fuller, at the same time, says at one point in an 1841 letter in the Dial that Emerson will be named the father of his country because he argues her cause against her.
Mm-hmm. And I think I find this extremely beautiful for him because I think that that I mean Theodore Parker will, will say that argues he's more her cause is America's her. cause. Yeah, so that, against that, America. that America as the let's say as the realization of the right as a project whose aim was to realize the the right to representation for everyone right. hasn't yet realized itself. It only exists as a promise, right? And so that in some sense, what Emerson is doing is he's saying, okay, I believe in thinking about the terms you use and in, in the way in which we have to resist uh, being appropriated by language that isn't just ours. Um, uh, this, this is linked to the essay Fate, which we right. could talk about later. But, but, you know, so what he does is he gives you these essays that do the work of revising his relation to these terms in order to give us an example of what it would mean so that each of these essays are effectively a training manual on how to read language right. historically in moments of danger. And he believed we lived in a moment of danger. And we did. I mean, and he wrote did. right before the Civil War, Absolutely. the danger, and he thought the danger was actually, yeah. if one could say it like that, not just a war, yeah. but that this experiment of inventing a new language and a new history and a new people yeah. would, be, would be kind of one we wasted. And it's a new language, though, but it's a new language that bears a relation to the old language, right? I mean, he, he in, I mean everybody reads Self-Reliance, an essay that very few people read, um, which is published later, 1860, late 1850s, Quotation and Originality, right? right. The amazing essay where he says, uh, all minds quote, every moment is the warp and woof of the past and the present. Um, we quote not only books, but tables, chairs, customs, religions. Uh, the originals are not original. There would be a history to the archangels if we but knew it. <laughs> I mean, this is an amazing passage. And, and it's not that it goes against self-reliance. It's totally consonant with self-reliance if you understand that self-reliance is itself 98% citation. Yeah, right. Do you know, so, so that it's, it's an essay, though, that very few people read, and, and it's an essay that has to be put in relation to self-reliance, right? Because it, it's the gloss, it's the confirmation of what he's doing. And that the answer is not that we say we live in quotation, that right. we quote not just words, but languages, right. but also tables, chairs, the Customs, habits religions, of our life, everything. the way we live, exactly. which is everybody's fear to not be ourselves because right. we live in other people's shells. Exactly. And in self-reliance, he says, the answer is not to just think, I know who I am. Yeah. He keeps on asking, but you don't know. Yeah. If it were that easy, I wouldn't have to write an essay about right. it. Right. If self-reliance was so easy, we knew who we are, and we don't know who we are. And he believes, in fact, that, that uh, like most things that are obvious, they take a long time to demonstrate. <laughs> and but that's why I called him a philosopher yeah. in a way that he kind of worries language or examines yeah. language, not in a pointless way just right. for its own academic sake, right. but because he says... It constitutes us. Yeah. And in that word that he uses sometimes, constitutes, because right. we have a constitution. We exactly. become who we are. Exactly. So there's this kind of fear or suspicion of language that we inherit and borrow, and this great hope and faith that he can demonstrate this is a new language. And this you. is the only chance you have to take yeah. the language you inherit, recontextualize it, and try and move it somewhere else in the direction of social justice. I want to ask you something of these, these essays. There's something about the sentences. What I find always really amazing about Emerson, you never quite know what the next sentence is going to be. Yeah, There's absolutely. something really surprising, absolutely. and he keeps on saying everywhere, yeah. he wants life to be this continually right. surprise. surprise. Yeah. But the essays work like that. As yeah. If you're walking through a town yeah. or yeah. some field, yeah. and the next thing you're going to see is you couldn't have anticipated, yeah. Yeah. which I also think is what he picks up in Whitman. Yeah. Yeah. Very famously, Whitman writes, sends him his self-published poem. Yeah. And Emerson does a very funny, Bloom says, like, I would never respond to, I can't anymore, I couldn't do my work. Yeah. And, yeah. and Emerson responds as, I greet you at the beginning of an amazing career. And yeah. he, he recognizes yeah. right away, this is a work of genius. Yeah. Yeah. 
And Whitman has the same capacity to right. write, and you don't understand what's going to come in the right. next sentence. I think the so. signature of Emerson's writing is always the successive changes in direction, as you say, and it's part of it that he'll he'll assert a figure, assert a, a, mm -hmm. a statement, um, and he'll immediately take it away in the next sentence. Right? There's a way in which he he moves from one figure to another figure to another figure, right. so that no figure has a chance to establish and fix itself. And I think this is partly because, in some way. In each instance, what he's trying to do is find a language that will match what he wants to talk about. So if he wants to talk about nature as a force of transformation, metamorphosis, and so on, then he wants to find a language that is itself constantly in transit, constantly mm -hmm. moving. Mm -hmm. um, and I mean, the way I've taught, thought about it often, that he's trying to find a language to match something that is always about to vanish. Because he thinks that, okay. that he's talking about the, the fugacity of, lang of mm -hmm. existence, mm -hmm. the way in which things are transient, things move, things change. Uh, nothing stays the same except this process of ever-changing. And he says, he says this is, a, this is um, something to be not afraid of. He said exactly. nature turns the, the leaves, the pages of its book right. and never goes back to a previous one. Yeah. He said it just exactly. lays and then he goes into geology. There's exactly. a layer, layer of granite and coal right, on right. top of it. Yeah, this is an amazing passage. It's an amazing passage in nature and he says, so nature never looks back. Is the passage in fate. In fate, I'm sorry, yeah. yeah, yeah. And nature never looks back. It yeah. turns the page and then it right, moves forward. Right, so there's right. a, I think this is also a particularly American dimension, this kind yeah. of forward-looking motion. Or yeah. the, this motion in the essays, they move on and on and on. I mean, I think he does, he does, I mean, people have talked about his optative mood, uh, and he is um, a kind of proleptic writer, a prophetic writer in okay. some sense, I mean, because he is writing, orienting himself toward a future that he hopes will come that won't be simply a repetition mm -hmm. of the past. Mm -hmm. But he takes his point of departure from the resources that he gets from the past. So what he wants is, it's not to eliminate our relation to the past, but actually to take our point of departure from the past and never to have the past so overburden us that it fully determines our future, yeah, right? right? To use it as a resource for creating a future, something singular that won't be a repetition of the past. I want to ask you something about when you just said that he's, he thinks nature is sort of this evanescence and there's a quote in experience, I'll yeah. read this quote, I take yeah. this evanescence and lubridity of all objects which lets them slip through our fingers when we clutch hardest yeah. to be the most unhandsome part of our condition. Right. Where do we find ourselves? Yeah. Is there a kind of melancholy strain also that he said he takes this yeah. evanescence and lubridity of all objects, which, we, which lets them slip through our fingers right. as the most unhandsome part of our condition? Yeah. Why is it unhandsome? Why isn't it sort of to be sort of a kind of Buddhist sort of say everything flows, nothing will be permanent? <laughs> What is unhandsome? Well, I mean, about it's that? interesting because I mean, first of all, I think the I mean, it's nice to emphasize the unhandsome part of the quote. I mean, this is something that Cavell does when he writes about conditions uh, handsome uh, and unhandsome. He wrote a book yeah, yeah, on yeah. This, so right? about this. Um, but you know, I, I would put emphasis on okay, handsome is important, but condition. This is the condition. You know, so so that that the condition is that we live in this this uh, evanescent transit, fugacious right. uh, world where right. nothing stays the same from one moment to the next, and it is an unhandsome uh, condition. But at the same time, it is the the, the condition from which we have to begin. Uh, there is no other condition. That's okay. the condition. Okay. Right. Um, and I think that that. Uh, I mean, the, the experience essay, of course, I mean, the melancholy is there because he writes this essay soon after the death of his son, Waldo. And, um, you know, if, if you think about it, you know, he's a philosopher. Um, and what he does is he takes the singularity of the death of his son 
and he develops a theory of experience. But if he's developing his theory of experience from the death of his son, experience can only be mourning. Mm. Uh, so all experience is mournful, and what mm. you mourn in mm. experience is experience. Because as he says later in the essay, experience is always mediated. Mm -hmm. So you mm -hmm. never have direct access to um, mm -hmm. uh, experience, mm -hmm. right? So it's always mediated, it's, it's never direct. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that, that this is part of the unhandsome part of our mm -hmm. condition too, mm -hmm. that you don't have direct access to something. And, and so that what, what's interesting in that essay, it's not just the melancholy that is there that's linked directly to the death of his uh, son. Of course, the essay Friendship, he writes after the death of his brother. There are a lot of corpses in Emerson's right. uh, writing. Um, but I also think uh, one, of, one of the things that I've argued elsewhere is that Emerson, like Frederick Douglass, is one of the great mourners of America, which is to say, um, and I, I take that specifically from the moment in the 1852 speech by Douglas on the meaning of the 4th of July for the Negro, where at one point he, he's addressing his mostly white audience and he says, this is a day of celebration for you, uh, but for me it's a day of mourning. And what he's mourning is extremely interesting because what he's mourning mm -hmm is an America that has not yet met its promises for, for the representation of everyone. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, so he's mourning something that never existed, right? So that instead of something existing and dying and then we right, mourn it, this right. is, has never existed. So, so both Douglas and Emerson begin from that mournful yeah, right. sight, yeah. um, and, and they, they, they want to believe that through acts of thought and writing, they can work through that. Moment. But this is interesting, that yeah. speech by Douglas in 1852, yeah. where he says, this he said everyone would, should read. And would you have, you argue, my humanity, he said yeah. it would be absurd. And right. so, and then he moves on and he argues it. Yeah. And he says, it would be ridiculous for right. me to have to prove my humanity. Yeah. And he proves it. Yeah. And then he moves on. Just like Emerson, when he said, it's not as melancholy, maybe as I thought it was when he says, where do we find ourselves? Yeah. As if he gives us a moment to say, this is an opportunity right. because we were confused. We actually thought we knew where we are yeah. because we actually thought we can control our experience. We can hold on right. to things. Right. And both Douglas and he say, this is the moment to actually find ourselves. Yeah. We haven't even found ourselves. Right. I think what he's also saying, you thought you knew who you are. Yeah. I can show to you that right. you have no idea where, where and who you are. Yeah. So we find ourselves now in this condition. Yeah, and in that essay, of course, it's like the, the sentence that you, the passage you quoted, which ends in where do we find ourselves, that line is also the first line of the essay. Right. So it's, so it's, a, it's an essay that, that repeats that line. And, and so it begins, it, where do we find ourselves? At that particular moment, you find yourself at the beginning of his essay on experience, right? You find yourself in relation to language, right? So that, that again, the essay is not about experience, on experience, um, right. what is experience. Is, this is experience. I mean, as you're, he's giving you an experience of experience, right? And the other part, I think, when you said earlier, to sort of, is it there's the evanescence and, also, the fluidity. This is America. Major transformation: right. a railroad, right. shipping, right, exactly. industry. Yeah. You know, huge political fights. I actually think this part is what resonates today. Was it where do we find ourselves? You right. can say, you know, we have new corporations that control our right. lives, right? right. Called right. Facebook and Google, not right. the railroad companies. We have political turmoil. Right. You know, our fair share of it. Right. Right. This is a very Emersonian moment. He would it have is. been. This is the yeah. moment to take stock. Right. This is a moment when language is used. Right. 
in really complicated ways right. and it carries histories where the right. people use freedom in completely opposite ways. Yeah, and he actually, he likes these moments of crisis and right. catastrophe, <laughs> right? I mean, he's Benjaminian in this um, sense, I think, so that, that he'll say that, that casualties are casual, right? That, that there's a, right. you know, it's a, and there's something that about the, the, the moment he talks about the war, the war when it comes, it comes as a, an illuminating sheet of lightning, you know, that, uh, because it comes as a force that challenges you to rethink your relation to the debates that are circulating. He says that, that um, it is impossible to extricate oneself from the questions of our age. You can no more keep out of politics than you can keep out of the frost, he says. Right. You know, this is fabulous possible because if you're going to try and get right. away from the frost, you go inside. But the moment you go inside because of the frost, that's the best confirmation of how influenced you are by the frost. Right. Okay. So there's no getting away from politics. You go inside the house and the so politics So it's a bad allegory you. to not watch the news anymore because I'm tired of our president. Exactly. It's just he says a that sign of no, his power. Actually. Yeah, there's no, exactly. There's no escape. Yeah. You're always going to be touched by it. And so I think that um, this, this thing of where do we find ourselves and, and your reference to the essay Fate, I mean, that, that essay is a kind of extraordinary register of the age in which he lives because he's, he begins writing it in 1850. Uh, he finishes it, publishes it in 1860. So basically, he's writing this essay during the 1850s, which is not just any decade, right? right this right. is the decade right, right, leading right. to the war. Right. Debates about uh, slavery, debates about expansion, westward, uh, right. um, westward expansion, manifest destiny, um, um, what it means to be human, slave, etc. All of these debates are there. And his context is the women's, the first women's rights movement everything. is there. So this the is... essay Fate actually comes to you in the form of a kind of archive or anthology of everything that's happening in that decade and even before. I'm going to read the quote, the first quote, the first, the yeah, beginning yeah. of fate, and then yeah. we'll talk about there's a kind of real clear opposition in fate that yeah. he sets up. He says, the beginning is, to me, however, the question of the times resolved itself into a practical question of the conduct of life. Yeah. How shall I live? We are incompetent to solve the times. Our geometry cannot span the huge orbits of the prevailing ideas, behold their return, and reconcile their opposition. We can only obey our own polarity. It is fine for us to speculate and elect our concern if we must an irresistible dictation. If we must accept, if, if it, accept yeah. an irresistible dictation. Yeah. To me, the question of the times resolved itself into a practical question. Right. So he right. actually moves right away yeah. from the question yeah. of the time. What you said, yeah. the big question, yeah. he said, how shall I live? Yeah. So the American question for him is not, what political opinion should I have? No, no, it's not. How sh it's, yeah. it's an existential yeah. question. Yeah. And, it, and he poses it not only as an existential question, but as the most difficult question, right? Because it's in this, it's tis fine to say I, I speculate and elect my course um, if I must accept an irresistible dictation. We're back to self-reliance, right? I mean, how, how, do you think about, how do you think about your own self right. when you're constantly being moved by these forces that are larger than you, call them fate, call them manifest destiny, call the discourses, the, the prevailing ideas, uh, the orbits that are so large we don't have a geometry that can span them. So that, that we find ourselves in, in the midst of an entire network of unforeseeably mediated relations and in the midst of these forces that are larger than us and are moving us in these directions, that are fading us and destining us in these directions, how do you take a stand? How do you resist that movement? How do you, how do you conduct your life in a moment when 
your life is never just your life, first of it's all. It's interesting what you just said, these kind of orbits. It's not what political theory until that point said. It's laws, a social contract society. No. He said it's all these things. It's Plus all these it's things. nature. All these things. Plus it's fate, a Absolutely. term which seems to be yeah. taken out of antiquity or something right, like that. Right. Which he does. Necessity. In fact, he gives a history of the term fate right. in the essay Fate. So he um, says there are all these forces working yeah. on us, right. shaping us, also empowering us in a certain right. way. Right. And then there's this other part. What's the other part? So the, the self or the our will or our mind. So there's this return always that through thought we can gain a certain kind of relation to these other relations. Yeah, this is complicated. I mean, I think that, that I mean, if we had time, what we, we could do is actually do a reading of the essay Fate, because I think it is one of the, the most extraordinary essays to talk about this issue, because he's really laboring in this essay to think about how he can conduct his life mm -hmm. in writing, in thought, in mm -hmm. the world, in this particular mm -hmm, moment, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. where the question of the times is the question of slavery, race, manifest destiny. These are the questions of the time. I think that the essay Fate is one of the most amazing readings of Manifest Destiny in terms of questions of race. And one of the extraordinary things about the essay is he never once uses the term Manifest Destiny. But mm -hmm. it's because he doesn't think there's anything obvious or natural about Manifest Destiny. So that the essay comes in the form of a kind of anthology of all the discourses of racism uh, that, are, that are circulating during the time. Mm -hmm. I mean, environmental causes, um, um, geological, I mean, all the different racial theories uh, of scientific racism, etc. Mm. And, and he's engaging, ventriloquizing these discourses at the same time that he's trying to work against them. Mm -hmm. So that he feels this irresistible dictation of all of these discourses that are mm. circulating during the period. And, and then he needs to modulate, insert himself, resist through this difficult essay, right? And, and for me, the, the, the most extraordinary moment in the essay, and if you'll permit me, I'll, I'll say sure. this for like three, two, three minutes maybe, um, is the moment that you already evoked where he talks about how a, a, the book of uh, fate is the book of nature and a thousand ages go by and a layer of coal, a thousand ages and a layer of marl and, thousand, and it keeps going until a thousand ages go by and man appears. So it's this rhetoric of natural development leading to the emergence of man. And then he says, um, England, France, and Germany plant themselves on America. So the rhetoric of colonization is linked to the rhetoric of natural development, which was often the rhetoric that justified colonization. Uh -huh. And then he goes into this extraordinary passage where he says, um, the German and Irish millions, like the Negro, have a great deal of guano in their destiny. They're ferried across the Atlantic, carted across America to ditch and to drudge, to make corn cheap, and then to die prematurely to make a spot of green grass on the prairie. It's an amazing allegory of America flourishing over the fertilizer that ethnic minorities have become. Mm. And this is a kind of extraordinary moment, and it's linked to what you're trying to say, because he prefaces that passage, and I'll say more about the passage in a minute, but he prefaces the passages by, by citing a series of passages from Robert Knox's, the race, a, a book called The Races of Men. Right. Massively racist text. Totally unavailable Don't, today. Yeah, I, yeah. I checked, thank God. I can give you, you a copy. You can't, <laughs> but you cannot order it on Amazon right away. So this is a book he, he, he references for a moment. He's quoting, yeah. he's yeah. quoting it. And this moment has often been read as a, as a confirmation of Emerson's own latent racism. Mm -hmm. right? But he's quoting, and as he's quoting, he says, there are many strong and pungent truths in this book. Right? And then he goes into the guano passage. 
the one word that is always associated with guano is pungent. Right. Right. So he's really saying this book is a piece of guano, which is right. to say this book is a piece of shit. It's a piece of fertilizer yeah. because it's fertilizing racist soil. Okay. Right. And so what you see, because he, he quotes the Knox and then he says, see the shades of the picture. The German and Irish millions like the Negro, etc. Okay. So um, if you believe that uh, if you read a sentence properly, it could become as broad as the world, the task of reading the, that closing right. passage is reconstructing the world that made that possible. And to do that, you have to talk about the history of the guano trade in the 19th century, which is an amazing story that belongs to the history of American colonization, imperialism. Right. Uh, I could tell you the story, but it's an extraordinary um, amazing moment where this metaphor that he's using, and he talks about the guano races of mankind, how with any change of industry, yeah. uh, millions of people, millions of populations are sacrificed. Right? And then he talks about the guano races of mankind, these disposable populations. Mm. And this is an amazingly prescient passage, because I think right now we, we live in a time so where, where pe there have never been more people transformed into guano. Yeah, that this is a, this terrifying idea that globalization leads to this kind of disposable and already, populations. And some populations will no longer be needed. And he's and already then, saying this in, in the 1850s. An industry shifts and then suddenly people absolutely. will become unemployed overnight and there's absolutely. no other recourse for them anymore. Yeah, yeah. So he's pointing all that this is America already. So, so this is a moment, for example, when he's inscribing himself in the language he's trying to work against. I mean, he's quoting the Knox. He's, he allows for the possibility that he'd be misunderstood because, of course, he thinks that to be great is to be misunderstood. But he, he also knows he doesn't have an alternative. He can't speak from outside the discourses that he's trying to go against. He has to run the risk of inhabiting those discourses and then contextualizing them and hoping that we can see what he's doing. But it's an it's So an, then when he says, see the shades in the picture, he's, he's directing you to read those passages differently. See the way in which it's not as clear as you thought it was. Um, I'm not like Knox, and I'm going to show you I'm not like Knox because I'm going to offer you a reading right. of globalization, race, uh, slavery, etc. And it's going to be encrypted in this passage which you then can rake and, and excavate. And if you do that, you can reconstruct the world that made my sentence possible. I've done a reading of this passage. Um, I'm actually an expert on the history of the 19th century guano trade. <laughs> but I put it in relation to a passage by George Jackson, uh, the Black Panther, founder of the People's right. Army. He writes a letter to Angela Davis when he's in Soledad prison. Um, and he's so no, in the 1970s. Sort of 1970, thing. yeah. The book is published. Solid Art Brothers yeah. published in 1970. And he's talking about the Middle Passage, right? The passage from Africa mm -hmm. to, to uh, America. And he says, amazing passage. Um, My recall is nearly perfect. Time has faded nothing. I remember the very first kidnap. I've lived through the passage, died in the passage, laying in the unmarked shallow graves of the millions who fertilized their, the, the American soil with their corpses, cotton and corn growing out of my chest, unto the third, the fourth generation, the tenth, the hundredth. It's an amazing passage, and it's absolutely resonant with Emerson. Mm -hmm. I mean, in fact, mm -hmm. even if Jackson mm -hmm. never saw Emerson's passage, right, 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 right. Uh, Jackson's passage tells you how to read Emerson's passage. And, and I think both of them are analyzing exactly what you're talking about, the way in which America has flourished over the production of disposable populations. And I think what you're saying in Jackson's passage, it's not just metaphor, no. just poetic no, license. Absolutely. It's actually 
the concrete history of this country Absolutely. rendered in a powerful image. Yeah. And in some yeah. ways, I think where Emerson is always going to to yeah. say, language can actually remind us of this history yeah. and cre recreate it for us and not just give yeah. us a picture of it. No, I'm glad this. you said this. Because, because it's otherwise could be just, oh, he's a creative writer. He said, no, this no, is no, no. what is experienced. This is, this is, I'm glad you said this because it's, it's not only linked to what I said earlier, language is the archives of history, but, but you have this metaphor that he's using, but this metaphor bears the, the material traces of an entire history that belongs to the history of American colonization and imperialism and, and racism and slavery and so on. I mean, it, it's an extraordinary passage. It's Derek Walcott said about post-colonial states, he said, the rot remains. Yeah. And Stola yeah. talked about this a couple of weeks yeah. ago. Yeah. And he said, it's real rot. Yeah. It's actually yeah. material decomposition right. of things that were yeah. left behind yeah. and of people who have died here. And it's, oh, no, it's no, not no a metaphor. I mean, I just, so in some ways to open up this yeah, question, it's not yeah. poetic literary language no. in Emerson or in Jackson. No, so just really telegraphically, um, Peru had been at war with um, um, uh, Bolivia. It incurred enormous war debt. So in 1841, Manuel Menendez, the president of, of, um, of Peru, nationalizes the guano resources and enters into a monopoly arrangement with the London firm, the House of Gibbs, for the distribution of guano uh, for five years. 1847, five years later, they become the monopoly. They're the ones who distribute <coughs> to North America and uh, uh, Europe. And it's first brought in commercial quantities into the U.S. in 1845, which is the year that the term manifest destiny is coined, mm. right? And there are all these speculations about the way in which this fertilizer is going to regenerate the American landscape. Emerson says in a journal passage, America does not want a prayer. It wants manure. Um, and and, and it's amazing things. And so it's, it's being advertised in horticultural journals and so on. The labor on the islands is done mostly by proven convicts, natives, and Chinese coolies, coolies who are brought... Some sometimes by the same captains and same slave ships that were used in the Atlantic slave trade and brought from uh, China with the promise of going to California to dig for gold. And all of a sudden they find themselves in the Guano Islands. Mm. Conditions are horrible, no water, food, etc. They're dying in the guano fields as they're doing. So these bodies become, I mean, it's linked to what you were saying before, these bodies become part of the fertilizer along with carcasses of seabirds and sea lions. So what I love about this, what I love about this, is that America's getting its seeds from Britain. It's getting its guano from uh, Peru, mm -hmm. uh, Argentina, even Africa. It's putting all this in the American soil. It's growing crops. Americans are eating the crops. It's a really easy way to show that the American body is not strictly speaking just American. And it's also not even strictly speaking just human because it has the carcasses of seabirds and sea lions within it. So, I mean, the further you go into it, the yeah. more you see that this metaphor bears this amazing material history that has to do with bodies, with labor, slavery, etc. And it's just this passage. But it's amazing what you can open up by doing this history and saying Emerson contains this in a few words. And he yeah. says, when he says, how shall I live and fade? Or where do we find ourselves in experience? Yeah. And you're yeah. saying the work to be done is to really listen to his sentences yeah. and say, where do we find ourselves in this it, network of relations exactly. from England to exactly. Peru to Bolivia exactly. to America? That this idea of America is yeah. just, so he's, one of the global thinkers in a way. He, is. he, says, he, he really says, is. How shall I live? Yeah. He said, to live in separation from the world. What you started out yeah. by saying. Yeah. He said, to think that self-reliance is you are yourself, right. autonomous, separate, right. and distant. He said, that is a fantasy and a dangerous illusion. It is, absolutely. And so, so that these texts bring us into 
a relational history right. that's really complicated and deep. Which is why I said that, that in Emerson's world, you could never say you're either with us or you're against us. Interesting. Yeah. I want to end here, and I do actually, yeah. uh, Eduardo, I really thank you for drawing my attention to the essay Fate, which mm -hmm. I pointed out to you, Random yeah. House Modern Library, which we all greatly yeah. respect, doesn't contain this essay. I always use so, the Library of America edition. So Library of America <laughs> All right, so I move from the, from, the, from the commercial Random House Library to the prestigious not-for-profit Library of America edition. But I will put a link to it in the, yeah. in the notes that the essay Fate probably to read Fate, Self-Reliance, and Experience, maybe yeah, a way for people. Yeah, and also the people. other essay to put in relation to that is the essay Friendship. Friendship. Because it is also about, it's one of the great essays on the nature relation. And, and if, if we have time, I can just talk about the opening, which is really, I mean, not too many people read the essay Friendship, and when they do, they usually see it as another reason why Emerson could never make a good friend. But it is one of the great essays on relation, and it's linked to something that I want to pick up on, an accent that you were saying before, which is whether or not we can know ourselves. Because it opens up with this parable of a commended stranger coming to a house. And um, it's not the people in the house, but the house itself is palpitating in anticipation of the stranger's arrival. And the people in the house are getting their best clothes on, they're cooking, they're cleaning the house, getting ready for the stranger to arrive. The stranger arrives and everything is fine until he opens his mouth. And as soon as he opens his mouth, the people say, oh, now we know his biases, his prejudices. He can be a friend no more. And what's great about the parable, of course, is it immediately exposes the biases and prejudice of the people in the house. And Emerson says, the stranger stands for all of humanity, which is to say that we always remain strange to ourselves and to each other. Mm -hmm. And um, what he says in this essay is that because within canonical meditations of friendship, one is always thinking about whether you become friends with people like you, unlike you. He says friendship occurs betwixt likeness and unlikeness. Mm -hmm. And that within the relation of friendship, it's the not mine that is mine. So it's not about possessing <laughs> the other at all. And he, he says toward the end that within the experience of friendship, we will meet as if we never met and we will part as if we never parted. So we'll meet as if we never met because you never fully know the other, but you part as if you never parted because the moment you encounter someone, you're moved by someone, touched or even kissed by someone, you're no longer the same person you were before that encounter oh, okay. because from that moment on, you carry a trace of that other in you. Um, and I find this extremely exquisite, yeah. but yeah. and also it is a confirmation of the relationality in which we live. Right. So I would also, I think friendship can be paired with self-reliance, along with the quotation and originality essay, along with the fate essay. Um, and this is just to say where we began, that to read Emerson, you have to read a lot of him. Yeah. Thank you. This is great. Thank you. We'll do, we'll do another session on, okay. <laughs> on the rest of Emerson, right, right. the other thousand pages. Right. Thank, Thank you, you so much.